Sports Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are so glad that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Hey, right off the bat, a huge thank you. I got tremendous amount of response from some new, I believe, listeners and some new followers on Twitter and also some old dependables that uh, really enjoyed. Didn't hear one negative response and a lot of positive stuff about my interview with Ed Nordholm and uh, really appreciate, you know, any kind of response, whether it's positive or negative. And, but uh, I felt good about that interview and I applaud Ed for uh, his honesty, appreciate his time and wish them nothing but the best, but thank you for the response. And we hope that you will, Enjoy this week's conversation just as much. Uh, in just a minute, we are going to have the former TNA and NWA champion Nick Aldis on as a guest. Don't forget, this coming Sunday night, it will be the NWA 70 show, the 70th anniversary of the National Wrestling Alliance from Nashville, Tennessee. Limited tickets if you live in Nashville or want to make the drive remain. It's the biggest advance in the history of the Nashville Fairgrounds, which has only been hosting pro wrestling for like 80 years. So it's the biggest advance they've ever had. So if you want to go to that live, I'd suggest buying a ticket. I looked the other day, and I think there's like six tickets that are in general mission. I know Tony Schiavone is going to be there, Jim Cornette, Road Warrior Animal, Dory Funk Jr., a lot of uh, NWA names, hopefully some surprises. Jeff Jarrett will be there as well. And my guest this week will be using his rematch option against Cody for the NWA World Championship. It will be a two out of three falls match. If you can't go see it live in Nashville, it is available on Fight TV exclusively. Great people. We've talked a lot about fights, so I certainly suggest that you check that out. It will be a whole night of wrestling action culminating with the two out of three falls rematch for the NWA World Championship. And we are going to be talking about not only his career, but also the pride that he has in, in rebuilding the, the brand and the name of the NWA, along with Dave Lagana and its owner, Billy Corgan. So without further ado, please welcome my guest this week on City Ringside, former TNA NWA heavyweight champion, the one and only Nick Aldis. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on City Ringside is a former TNA and an NWA heavyweight champion this Sunday. As a big rematch at NWA 70 versus Cody Rhodes. Two out of three falls in Nashville, Tennessee. You can see it on Fight TV and presented by the Global Force Wrestling and the NWA. I'm talking about none other than Nick Aldis. Welcome to City Ringside. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Uh, pleasure's all mine. So um, you grew up, I want to just ask, we'll get to the, the NWA 70 event and how you hooked up with, uh, with, with Billy Corgan and, and Dave Lagana from, uh, from uh, the NWA a little bit later. But I wanted to go back to the beginning. Uh, growing up in the UK, I'm assuming, uh, but I, I'm not sure, uh, were you a pro wrestling fan? And if so, what promotions were you a fan of? Oh, oh yeah, no, I was, I was a big fan. Um, when in the beginning, 
it was it was WWF. Um, you know, the, they, they had such a strong presence in in Europe in the UK. Um, I think mainly because of Brett and and Davy Boy. Um, you know, and, and obviously they're just their their marketing. I always say this about them. You know, like even during the um, even during the the Monday Night Wars era, where perhaps you know when WCW was was the number one show in the United States, you know worldwide, the, that that perception wasn't the same. You know, we always I, I know you know speaking as a kid um, who grew up in the nineties, you know it was. It was always WWF was always considered, you know, the market leader because they had such strong branding. And I think that the the thing that was a real teller was the fact that even if even if you didn't watch wrestling, like you still knew who all the WWF wrestlers were because of all the the toys and the the licensing was off the charts, you know. And so uh, it was WWF mainly, I have to admit. And then um, later on, as I as I became more of a fan of the actual show rather than just kind of the the cartoony characters and just sort of having the toys and stuff, it was. Uh, you know, I watched. I was a. I was an attitude era kid. You know, I watched. I watched both shows and and, and was a fan of. You know, everyone that you've you've probably heard everyone say. You know, from my generation. You know, a hundred times over. Steve Austin, The Rock, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and then on the other side, you know, Sting was. I was always such a huge fan of Sting and Hogan and and you know Goldberg, the NWO. Um, you know, just, just that whole era, there was just so much energy and, you know, the vibe with wrestling, it was just, there was just nothing like it at that time. I mean, you know, you were there, you know, and it was just nothing like it. Like, and that's what drew me to it. And it's what sort of got me, it actually sort of led to my disinterest in real sports. And I was a pretty good athlete, you know, in, in high school and stuff, I competed in a lot of sports. And as I got, became more and more a fan of wrestling, I was just like, I want to, I want to do this. I want to be like these guys, you know, this is, this was theater, you know, it was sports and theater. That's, you know, that's why sports entertainment is such an apt uh, title for it. You know, it's just, it, I, I loved everything about it. Sure. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that about WWE still being number one in uh, in, in Europe. One of the, uh, you know, everybody talks about the Monday Night Wars and, you know, I, I think it's even bigger now than it was when we went to it. In some ways, uh, everybody has an analyzation of, uh, of what went wrong and all that. But it's funny you mentioned yeah. it. I think one of the more underreported stories, and I may, I may, you just gave me an idea, I may try to do a podcast on this if I could find the right guest, is the... Uh, WWE success in Europe as they weren't as successful in, uh, in in the U.S. anymore, and WCW got more successful. Some could say, and it'd be an interesting conversation, uh, totally off topic, but be you know that their popularity in the U.K. and Europe might have kept them in business at their darkest hours. Absolutely. I think that was a huge part of it. And I think if you talk to some of the guys who were there at that time, that's one of the things that they talk about is how much when their business was down in the U.S., they were they were going overseas a lot, you know, and, and they went from going maybe sort of a couple of times a year to suddenly it was sort of almost, you know, every other month they were going somewhere. And, and in, in many ways, it was probably a blessing for them because I think they but they, they were forced to to look at there are other markets uh, from a live event perspective. And I could be wrong. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just sort of guessing here, but I think that, you know, obviously if you run a business and you, and you've got all these and you're, and you're selling out in the U S all the time, you're not going to really bother going anywhere else because you, you know, the cost involved is too high. And so in a, in a way, the fact that they, their business was down um, during the sort of mid nineties. And then obviously, you know, and then even with, before they kind of picked up steam again, 
they they, they they were sort of by, because they were forced to do it they suddenly realized like wow we can sell out in Israel and we can sell out in you know South Africa and all across Europe and everything like that and I think that you know as a result I think they, they truly realized how much reach they had as a brand and they still do to this day it's unbelievable really Absolutely. And congratulations. You just, you just created a topic for another podcast, uh, for another edition of City of Ringside. Um, when you became a wrestler, any uh, specific wrestlers that you tried to pattern yourself after, or maybe a combination of some, or did you just want to do your, you know, the, the Nick Aldis thing? Uh, no, I was absolutely, I think, you know, I think most wrestlers, uh, with the exception, you, know, you, you get sort of, you get these, real anomalies like I would suggest probably Kurt Angle is probably one of them and guys like that who who just sort of create their own style right off the bat and just sort of seem to just take to it but for me I very much had to emulate others and you know like most like a lot of wrestlers they have they have a sprinkling of this and a bit of that and a dash of this guy uh, for me um, obviously I mean my the, the, the match and the feud, really, the rivalry that really that took me from being just a fan to being someone who wanted to do it, it was um, it was really uh, Rock and Triple H um, in 2000. Like it was I remember WrestleMania 15 with with Rock and Austin. I remember just thinking that that, that whole main event and that whole presentation and everything about it. I just remember thinking this is the coolest thing I've ever seen and I would love to be like that. But by the time we got to sort of a year later and the, the, the rock and, and, and Hunter were doing their, you know, their rivalry. I just remember watching, getting up late to watch those because the, the pay-per-views wouldn't start till like one in the morning in the, in, in England. And I remember watching that and just going, I, I, I want to be both of these guys. <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, I did like me and my friends used to sort of, um, if we were, if we were sort of running around, like doing something, doing something stupid or whatever, we would, we would either, you know, a lot of the time we would throw out like sort of NWO or DX references and, you know, four horsemen references, stuff like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, stables and factions are always so cool with, with kids. And like now with like Bullet Club and stuff like that, because people just relate to that, like a group of their friends and they, you know, it's, it's that sort of an element of having a, having a, a group of guys all kind of acting the fool together. Um, but so you know, obviously there were, you know, there were influences, you know, all the way back. And, and then as I got more and more into the business um, and, and started working more, uh, you know, flair, you know, certainly, certainly seeps his way into a lot of my, not so much necessarily my, my style. Like if you watch me, I don't think immediately think of flair, but uh, in terms of the way I think if I was sort of working off the cuff or if I was, working with someone who was, you know, perhaps uh, a little greener or, you know, not, not, you know, because I traveled all over the world. I really did. I, you know, I, did, I was wrestled, I defended the title on four different continents in like nine months. So I, I had a real range of opponents. A lot of the time, my sort of go-to mindset would be what would Flair do, you know? Uh, so there, there are different, you know, different things like that. And then um, Hogan obviously is a huge influence. I think like for most people, Hogan, even if they don't know it, you know, Hogan provides some influence. Sting, same thing. Uh, Austin, uh, Bret Hart, again, I, I, I think along with Flair, Bret Hart's probably the other guy who a lot of the time, if I'm, when I'm thinking about a match or I'm sort of constructing something or, I'm, you know, trying to sort of put a sequence together or think of the storytelling in the ring, 
I, again, that, that's the other person I think of, like, what would Brett do, you know? Um, and, you know, oh, Kurt Hennig, too. That's another guy that I, I regularly kind of channel and think of and, you know, try to emulate, although it's not an easy thing to do because obviously you're so talented. One of the best for sure. Hey, it's funny. Uh, you talked about uh, being a big fan of the Hogan. Uh, I'm sorry, the Triple H rock feud. The way things are going, uh, they might be headlining Saudi Arabia in 2020. So uh, might be able to re- might be able to relive that all over again. It's crazy, right? Like uh, I just I sort of dip in and out depending on how busy I am, and then uh, you know I, uh, I see like wait, what, the, 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 what's the what's the angle that's happening overall? Like Triple H and, and Shawn Michaels against Kane and the Undertaker. Like, what like what's happening? <laughs> you know? But that's I mean it's um, if you think about it, it's really no different to any other period in the business. It's like a, a, a char- you know characters that that resonate and and get over that to that level. You know, they people want to see them. They don't necessarily want to see them every week, but when they when when they come back out, people do want to see them. And obviously, that's evident. And and again, that speaks to what we were talking about again with the other countries, because some of these other countries now, obviously, there's a ton of money, uh, you know, uh, up for grabs uh, in in the Middle East, you know, with with, with these shows or whatever. And part of the you know part of that is the fact that they're going well. All these all these awesome wrestling uh, characters and rivalries and matches and stuff that and they, they never got any of them at the time you know they had to watch them on tv and now they want them in person sure nostalgia definitely is uh is a big deal in professional wrestling because uh if it wasn't um my uh i, I certainly wouldn't have a podcast that anybody well, and, yeah, to and, listen and look to. We're, we're we're riding we're riding nostalgia with the nwa you know like that's you know you you go. Could, that, that was and then a lot of people at first were, were a little persnickety about you know what the hell is billy corgan doing why did he buy the nwa what did he even buy it wasn't but uh, you know fast forward a year later and there's Cody and I stood in stood in the ring in a sold out arena, and they're you know and they're standing and they're going nuts, and we haven't even touched, you know, because that that belt meant something, and we made and we reminded everyone what it meant, you know, it was like the Stanley Cup. Well, I grew up in uh, championship wrestling from Florida, uh, where the NWA, cha- you know, that was the uh, that that was the only thing really that uh, that 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 meant anything. And uh, it's funny, uh, I've often told the story uh, when I first uh, Harley Race was the champion when I was a kid, and my dad used to take me to the wrestling matches. When I first got involved in the business, you know, I'd call my dad, he'd, I'd say, oh, you know, uh, I, you know, hey, uh, me and Hulk, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're talking. Talking and he invited me there, or, or I had a drink with Randy Savage, and it, he didn't really care. But when, when I told him that I was invited to Harley Race's house in Kansas City for a barbecue, he was like really impressed because to him Harley Race was yeah. the, was the best in the world. Uh, you know, because he wasn't a wrestling fan, he was just taking his kid to the matches, and that's what he saw. Hey, yeah, back nice. back in the. Back in the time where you were doing indie wrestling in, in the UK before you, you hooked up with TNA and came overseas, um, I, I, I believe uh, I would be correct to say it's much different than today. Wrestling today, as we know, in the UK is very, very hot. Uh, promotions are doing huge houses. and um, but, but tell me about indie wrestling back in the time that uh, you broke in. Uh, one of my favorite uh, – times in the business was after wcw closed i was still getting severance pay so it was double pay i went over with uh, fit finley uh and wrestled for brian dixon and scott conway for about a month and tony nice. saint tony saint Clair not wrestled announced wrestled yeah yeah uh, uh, tony saint Clair were on the cards and drew mcdonald and dave dave uh yeah 
uh, Dave Taylor. Dave Taylor, and said one of the the best times I ever had. Even though they made me eat Indian food every night, which I hated, which I later found, <laughs> which I later found out was a rib because I bitched about it so much the first night. They made me go. They made made me go. They were just as miserable as I was. But uh, so tell me, tell me a little bit about back in uh, your day working for Brian and and Scott Conway and, and people like that. Uh, yeah, I, I I never worked for Scott Conway. He was um, he was I I think he was I don't really what, I don't know what he was doing at that point. Whether he was still active or not, certainly not as active. But Brian was yeah, Brian was absolutely the top dog. And uh, it's funny because I get I get asked this a lot, and and especially with when I do you know British. Um, wrestling media, you know, podcasts and things sure. of that nature. Let's say, and they say things like, "Oh, you know, the, now the business in the UK is so hot, and uh, and and now it's, you know, blah blah blah." Do you take do you take pride in sort of being a you know being someone who helped that and or you know opened the door for it or sort of you know helped shine a light on it so that then people start paying attention to it and so, and, and okay, there some of that is so, uh, you know some of that is true, right? and, that's, and it's very nice for people to say it. But the thing I find interesting about it is that um, the, this, I think that the uh, the business in the UK was very healthy when I, I broke in. Like it was, it, it, yeah, okay, it was mostly it was mostly Brian's business. Um, what's happened now is it's probably become a bit more fragmented, a bit more of a balkanized market. But um, but certainly that you know I. <laughs> I was very spoiled, really, because my first my first full time year in in as a as a pro, um, I think I was eighteen or nineteen, or sort of somewhere. But I was either eighteen or nineteen, and between working for Brian on the uh, doing the Butlins doing the Butlins run, which for people who don't know, Butlins is a is the, there are three Butlins parks in the UK, and they're basically um, large sort of. Uh, vacation resorts and they have, you know, and, and they're, they're all by a beach and they have different, they have like arcades and they have different, you know, they have sort of, you know, huge pools and different things, all the sort of activities and whatnot. Uh, but one of their, one of their calling cards and one of the staples of sort of British holiday parks is, is in-house entertainment every night. And, and that's where wrestling really, that was bread and butter for wrestling because wrestling was a low cost, uh, you know, entertainment act that they could have, on a weekly basis. Um, and so, you know, that's how a lot of us, you know, made our bones in wrestling in the beginning because like I was, because Brian, I was fortunate enough to have a bit of a look. Brian took me on full time and I could wrestle six days a week from about March to about October, you know? And, and, uh, but in addition to that, the Butlins things, Brian was also running a lot of, regular you know i guess what you'd call house shows live events in 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 halls and stuff like that and his business was really good that year i guess it was 2005 i think was when i went full-time for brian and you know i remember they were they were they considered it a bad house if it was less than you know seven or eight hundred people which you know by independent standards is is, is big sure and it was like we'll do that every night and uh and and i think that it's just brian just didn't he just didn't crow about it on social media and just didn't really advertise it on he just didn't put it on the internet didn't didn't put his matches on online didn't put them on youtube didn't put you know what i mean just he just was that he just ran it like a business and so for the team of us that were on that you know and it was that was regular and um 
And so I think that what the difference now is obviously there's more attention from the overall wrestling world, the wrestling community. But um, the, the market's always been there, you know, especially the live event market. You know, the, one thing that British wrestling fans have proven time and time again is that if, you know, they, they will they will come out and they will, you know, and they will buy a ticket and they will attend a show, um, you know, if, 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 they, if you make it appealing enough. Um, so it was, you know, it, it really wasn't that different other than the fact that I've never worked a schedule that that regularly ever since, you know, which is ironic, really, because you would think that you'd go the other way. You'd go from working less, you know, to uh, to working every night. And I, I went from working every night to coming to, you know, coming over to the States and obviously being paid, you know, a lot more, but but um, working less. Yeah, even when I was over there for a month in 2001, uh, they were still averaging, I'd say, five, 600 people a show. Uh, so, you know, obviously it grew a little bit between uh, those years and when you started. Hey, I'm really just a side note again that has nothing to do. I go off on tangents every once in a while. Uh, you mentioned Butlins and, and, and the whole concept behind it. One of the things that I found as a live music buff is that uh, and concert buff is that one of the other things Butlin provides that uh, is unique, or at least they used to, is they bring in nostalgic 70s rock and roll bands that like never mm-hmm. tour the U.S. I don't know if you have any interest in, 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 in 70s rock and roll music, but I'd always go on the Butlins website and see, God, I don't know, bands like 10CC and bands that I'd never right. toured the U.S. And, you know, they're doing like, they have like six bands on a bill. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, yeah that, that's true. And, and, um, as, as, as the, uh, I think by the time I started doing Butlins for Brian, like they'd really, some of their, you know, the, the, the venues, the, the, the entertainment venues have become really quite sophisticated. I mean, I remember we would do center stage and this was at a time where, um, on any given night, the team would be, could be, uh, you know, myself, Seamus, uh, Wade Barrett, uh, Drew, Drew McIntyre, you know, Daniel Bryan was on this a lot. And, you know, so, I mean, when you think about it and you go back, like uh, Gangrel was on these shows, uh, PCO, you know, all these different guys. And you think, well, you know, and, and it just happened to be, and it happened to be when Bryan's business was good, you know, and obviously all of those names I just mentioned went on to, or, or had either been big stars or went on to become big stars in their own right. And it's like, I remember, you know, center stage sometimes in, in Skegness and stuff could have, you know, it would be, close to 2000 people in it and there'd be pyrotechnics and you know like they got to a point where we were doing so well that they would they brought in like cheerleaders almost kind of like nitro girls you know what i mean like that it was really really stepping up and then it wasn't long after that that wwe started running you know started doing uh started adding minehead uh you know started adding the wwe their live events they started adding Butlins to their to their UK touring schedule because they went wow like this is a, you know, obviously there was a bit of a relationship there between uh, Brian and WWE because of um, you know because of Regal and and Fit Finley and Dave Taylor and guys like that there was a sort of um, there was a bit of a relationship there so it sort of I think it sort of opened that door but yeah and you know so for us it was it was sort of validating because we would think wow you know these these shows are as as good as we thought they were and it was uh, I, you know I was very proud of of those days it was honestly probably the most fun I've ever had in wrestling. 
Yeah, it's funny. I have a unique perspective of those guys because uh, uh, when I worked for WCW, I lived in a, a place called Peachtree City. It was a suburb right. of uh, of Atlanta, and uh, and Dave Taylor and uh, Fit Finley and uh, uh, Steve Regal, William Regal, all lived. As a matter of fact, uh, Regal's house is right around the corner from ours. All lived within like a mile of each other, and we would socialize yeah. when we were off with our wives and our families. So I really got yeah. to see that British humor and 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 ribbing and and camaraderie that those guys had and uh and 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 you know again like i said one of that 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 month i spent announcing in england was, was one of the highlights of my career and it wasn't because the houses were great or because i made a ton of money it was just because of the camaraderie and the uh the, the fun that those guys had but uh so I digress. At, um, at some point, you caught the attention of TNA only because of your your character's debut. I'm assuming it was when you were on uh, the uh, UK Gladiators show. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you well, you remember this because you were there. But like, so I did. So I did. Uh, yeah, I got. Yeah, I got cast for. Um, I did a little acting. I did a little acting gig. That I got. Um, I got the gig. It was like, uh, and it was like this live. Uh, motorcycle stunt show like a Mad Max type show and they, they wanted a wrestler for this role of the sort of like the host sure. um, and I got the gig and the guy who directed it basically said hey I have a talent agency um, I mostly specialize in like stunt guys and stuff like that but every now and then stuff comes in for someone who fits your sort of physical characteristics if you want I'll keep you on the books and you know be in touch I said sure but like maybe a year later, he contacted me out of the blue and said, "Hey, they're bringing back Gladiators." And you know, obviously, you guys had American Gladiators for, and it was the same show. We just it was just called Gladiators in the UK, and it was huge in the nineties. It was a massive show, and um, so you know, the idea that they're bringing it back was like, I think, wow, this is a, you know, this could be a real, you know, re- this could be a huge opportunity. And um, went to the uh, went to the auditions. There was a few wrestlers there. Um, obviously, uh, Mason Ryan, uh, who had a little run in WWE, he was on. He got he got cast in the second season. Um, and it was between me, it was me and a few other wrestlers were at these auditions. And, and they, I mean, these auditions. I was probably the youngest guy there. I was twenty years old at that time. And I and I remember thinking, I don't have a chance. Like there, there's all the there was, I, there, I saw guys at this, these auditions who I recognized from films and television shows and like Muscle and Fitness magazine and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I've got no chance. But wow. what the hell? But luckily, uh, one of the things they did, they did it at an army barracks, and they put us, they made us do like these assault courses because um, they really wanted, you know, they wanted to make sure you were legit. And because I was wrestling six days a week at that time, so my wind was like untouchable at that time. I mean, it's not now, but <laughs> but at the time, I was my, my cardio was like through the roof. So I just whipped through this stuff like it was nothing. And obviously, a lot of these big sort of muscle guys were, were having trouble. And then, so I sort of, I, you know, like I could see a few, I could see him making a few notes and starting going, okay, you know, this guy might, you know, and I made it through the first wave of cuts, and then and then I started doing the the maths and sort of looking and going, okay, well, they want six guys. They just cut 25 from the 50. And I'm sort of, sort of going, well, I've got like a one in uh, one in five or six chance here now. You know what I mean? And I'm sort of like, okay. And then they brought cameras out and they they stuck cameras in everyone's face. Just, like I had heard they had done this at WWE tryouts. They just stick a camera in your face and go, okay, talk. You know, like try to catch you off guard. Right. And uh, some of these guys, I mean, you should have seen them. They just they just completely withered and died. You know, they had you know you could just like they they were full of bravado. You know what I mean, full of piss and vinegar. Like when the cameras weren't rolling, and then as soon as they turned the cameras on, they just were they didn't know what to do. Whereas, fortunately for me, because 
I had at any given time, like most wrestlers do who work, who working, who are working that regularly that, you know, have, you have a sort of, a, a, have, you might have like four or five sort of go to promos, right. Generic sort of promos that you can, that you can just kind of bang out at any given moment. And I had one luckily. And, um, and I just sort of, I just ran it, you know, just, just, just talked for about 30 seconds straight down the lens and did, did one of my sort of generic pro wrestling 101 sort of promos. And I, I knew, I knew immediately I was going to get the gig because I saw the producers all sort of look at each other and go, Oh, like, thank God. Like you know, one of these guys knows how to actually talk. <laughs> and, uh, and there was the same thing when I did the show. Um, Richard Wolf, who was the head of the network, he was the one who he personally wanted to bring this show back. And so he was also executive producing this show despite being the head of the whole network. And uh, that always helps, by the way. I did this. Oh, sure. And I did this. Um, I did a promo on one of the tapings that I wasn't supposed to do. Like, in, like they didn't have me scheduled to do an interview. Um, and like, and I just, uh, and I was sort of, I was, I was, I was floundering, right? I did about two or three episodes and I thought, God, I'm not, if I don't get to talk, like uh, this, I don't, I'm not going to get over on this show. So I just did one anyway, just figured, well, you know, ask for forgiveness, right? Sure. I come out and the producers are all yelling at me and they're like, you're costing us money. Like, you know, there's some stuff, blah, 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 like all this, t- you know, how much it costs to TV time. And blah, 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 blah. Just, 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 you know, just cut, like, cut a promo on me. And then, and I thought, oh God, like I'm in trouble here. I'm going to get fired or whatever. And then Richard, who was the head of the network, he comes bursting into the green room and, I, and everyone goes silent because they're like, oh shit, you know, he's in trouble. And he looked at me and was like, you. And he's like, I want to see that every single episode from wow. now on. And that was it. And so like after that, I was, you know, the character Oblivion was kind of, you know, t- took on a life of its own and got, I mean, by this, they, they had not, they clearly had me penciled as like a sort of, one of the cast, like I wasn't being positioned to be sort of one of the stars of that show. And then by the time the second season ran, they had, I, they were running commercials just for me. So you know, I was doing pretty good, you know, and, and, um, uh, it's depending on who you talk to, um, <laughs> they ran a, I know this was to be true. They did a, um, FSM who I still write a column for to this day, uh, which is the, the, the number one independent pro wrestling magazine in the UK. Um, they, they did an interview with me and I, I remember basically saying to James, the editor at the time, um, cause I was, I was so busy at that point with like filming and doing other stuff and doing media and stuff that it was hard to sort of, as silly as it sounds, it was, it was really hard to get me on the phone for sort of a couple of hours cause they wanted to do like a 10 page, you know, really long interview. And I sort of went, okay. I said, maybe email me the questions and I can you know, have a think about them and really write something entertaining and type it. But, and I knew he knew what I was trying to do because, um, he, he knew I was sort of angling for him to see how I was as a writer. So, and then after that, he said, you know, have you ever thought about having a column? So he gave me a column in the magazine, but anyway, um, they ran a, they ran the feature on me and it happened to be the first episode, the first uh, issue of the magazine where AJ was on the cover. And obviously AJ was a TNA at the time. So it was the first. It was the first time that a TNA guy had been on the cover because it had always been WWE guys up to that point. But because you know TNA's business was starting to do quite well in the UK, um, they had AJ on the cover. So obviously TNA paid closer attention to that issue, and uh, and obviously so then it just that was you know that was just that was lucky in that respect because obviously they were looking they were looking at it more closely, and then they saw this thing on me, and Dixie was like, 
who's this guy? You know, like the UK is our strongest market. And like, this is like eight page feature on this guy. Cause he's on a television show. Like maybe we should get him. And, um, so then according to <laughs> Kurt Angle, Kurt claims that he was in the UK doing media and was flipping through the channels in his hotel and saw the show and saw me and then called the office and said, you've got to see this guy. He's got to be a pro wrestler. Like we should sign him. So depending on who you talk to, <laughs> Kurt, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt takes responsibility or, or Dixie, but I know Dixie saw the magazine um, because James obviously then put me in touch and said, Hey, Dixie wants to get in touch with you. Is it okay if I give you a number? I'm like, uh, sure. Yeah. Like to get a contract in the States. Like, yeah, you can give him my number. No problem. Were you still, then, yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I said, and then, um, it, it, it was, you know, it was, that was, I think that was like, uh, November, October, November of 08. And then I started in January of 09. So were you still doing the UK gladiator show when you started in TNA or had that gone away? I had, I was filming the second season. Um, I was filming the second season when I signed my contract with TNA. So, um, the chances are, had they, had they renewed for a third, I probably wouldn't have done it anyway, but they actually, they didn't end up renewing. And I think, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what the reasoning was for it because it was the highest rated show, but I heard it was, it was a very costly show and they, and a new guy took over the network and British, British TV is full of politics, you know, and it says like, so someone else takes over a network and the first thing they do is, is get rid of all these shows so that they give the give, you know they put their own sort of vibe on the on the channel and stuff and the show they replaced it with was dead within a season so we took sort of good pride in that but i mean for me i didn't care because i was i obviously i had already moved on to something else so many people remember the british invasion which was a great team you and and doug williams and and rob terry sort of as the as the uh, third i don't want to say third wheel that's insulting uh but he enforcer. he was he, enforcer he was he was green and and, and y'all were y'all were uh, kind of uh easing him in but uh Many people, including myself, until I started doing some research, forgot the plan team that you uh, were supposed to have with Desmond Wolf, uh, Nigel yeah. McGuinness. Um, and I guess that's when um, Desmond, I, I still to this day don't know, and it's none of my business, but something happened where he uh, he, he couldn't wrestle anymore. Uh, yeah. And now he's trans, uh, he's turned uh, into a, as we know, a NXT uh, WWE uh, commentator. Um, how disappointed were you when uh, when that team didn't happen? Because that team could have been legendary, in my opinion. Well, it's nice of you to say. It's you know we obviously had something because we I don't know we had I think we had one match, maybe two matches, um, and we did we did some vignettes. And that was it. We did like one. We did an in-ring promo where we were we were getting. I remember we were getting ready to set up a tag match with with the with the machine guns with uh, Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin, and they were they were hot at the time. And um, and I remember people were really excited about this, you know, about sort of us wrestling them. And um, and unfortunately, that's that's when you know when Nigel Nigel's sort of uh, issue came to, you know came came to the forefront, and he couldn't wrestle anymore. And it was like. Oh, it's amazing to me that we did I mean, we did probably four weeks of television and people still to this day still mention it and say, man, how good like London brawling would have been. And like, how do you, you know, it was such a it was such a shame that that 
didn't take off. I feel like it could have been. So, you know, you're not the first person to say it. And it was, there was definitely some chemistry there. And I think it was, it was one of those things where um, I was, I was comfortable in a tag team because when Doug, when they brought Doug in to, to be my tag partner, it was, you know, it's because the, the character they had initially given me just wasn't working at all because they didn't, I don't know whether it was Vince or whoever, because I, no one ever gave me a straight answer, but clearly they didn't actually watch gladiators before I, before they wrote for me because it had, they watched it, they would have seen like, I was this brash over the top pro wrestling character on a show full of stoic, boring gladiator guys. Hence why I stood out on that show. But instead they, they brought you. me into TNA and then made me be like a stoic, boring <laughs> gladiator guy. And I was like, no, don't you like, I was going like, did you guys not see what I do? You know what I mean? And, and, but you know, when you're 21, like you're not going to sit there and go, "This isn't my character." Like you know, I just I just went along with it, and and I remember thinking, I don't think they ever saw what I, you know, a promo I did. Because I remember Kurt coming up to me and being like, "Why are you doing this? Like, why aren't you doing like those promos like I saw you do on TV?" And I was like, "I don't know, you know, like I, I'm not I'm not in any position to." to say that, you know, I'm just, I'm they, they scripted everything at the time. And, you know, they were trying, I think they were trying to be like WWE. So they were scripting everyone's promos and, you know, really sort of micromanaging. And I just, um, yeah, the character didn't work at all. And obviously it didn't help that they sent me out in that freaking helmet, you know, the dunce hat. <laughs> so, yeah. I was, but anyway, so the, the tag team came along to save me. And then like, and then that ended up doing really well and, and and we sort of got as much mileage out of it as we could but again even now people still talk about the British invasion even you know and, and I think that um, it was I was just comfortable in the tag team because it allowed me to show more personality without having to worry about carrying the load of the whole match because it was still very green sure um, yeah uh, I was going to say Kurt forgot to tell him about that uh, after, after he saw the show he forgot to he told him how great you were he just forgot to tell him what your gimmick was but uh, right, right. that's funny. Hey, um, you talked about being a big fan of Sting. Um, I know at Bound for Glory 2013, uh, Sting tapped out to you uh, in one of the top matches and sort of the turning point in your career as a singles wrestler. How, how much did that mean to you? Um, it, it's, it's still to this day, you know, one of the most important things to me, you know, personally and professionally, the fact that he, you know, um, it, that he was willing to, you know, to do the, do the honors for me like that. Uh, Sting, uh, right from the beginning, um, really, really made an effort to speak up for me and to be an advocate for me. And, and uh, you, you probably remember this. Um, I wrestled Sting on on an episode of Impact in 2009, completely out of the blue. It was, it was. Um, I remember I was, I was still in, I was still living in the UK at the time, so they would fly me in for the TVs. I remember getting on the plane and uh, back then they would email out the formats and I was reading through the format and I saw a thing and it said Doug Williams and Rob Terry versus uh, Team 3D or Beer Money or whoever. And I remember being like, that's odd. Like, why is it Doug and Rob, not me and Doug? And I remember thinking like, oh God, you know, like the, uh, am I going to, are they switching me and Rob? Like, am I going to be like the, you know, the, the sort of manager, you know what I mean? And I was like, this is terrible. You know, what's happening? And I, re- and I just, and I'm, so I was about to get really, you know, I'm about to get on this eight hour flight and I was I'm steaming mad about this thing. <laughs> and I keep flipping, keep going through, scrolling through and I get to the very end and suddenly it says, you know, main event, Magnus versus Sting. And I go like, what? <laughs> like, why am I wrestling Sting? 
and it was obviously like a, it was kind of a I know now from you know from under, from learning more about booking and things like that from guys like Jeff and Dutch and you know people like that that it was a reset for Sting because he had he had uh, he had lost to Joe on the pay per view um, the night before and. Um, and so, you know, obviously I understand now that, you know, you just, you need a, you need a reset match to get him back on track. And they, you know, and they, they, and obviously I don't know, I don't know whether he had any say in it, but I think he did. And they just said, you know, we, you know, you want to work with someone and, you know, just get a good, get a good win on TV. And he was like, how about that? How about, how about him? You know, and I, for a 22 year old kid who's, you know, who, who at one point was probably hanging on by a thread. Do you know what I mean? As far as like, are we going to cut this guy? Have we got anything there? Um, to get that was, you know, was so, so significant. And then we just had, a, I just had such a, you know, I was so grateful to him. And, and he always just, even if I wasn't working with him, you know, he, I went out of, you know, he just, he would always go out of his way to check on me and to see what they were doing with me and, you know, make sure I was, you know, what, what, like, what are your plans now? I think Sting always wanted me to be a baby face. I think that's why he was happy in 2013 because he, I think he saw some of himself in me, which is a huge, you know, which is a, which is a hugely presumptuous for me to say, but he, he would say, you know, you're, you're a really good heel and you're a really good talker. He's like, but the money's in being a baby face, you know, and that's, that was his principle and he would say you know once you turn you should stay babyface and you know blah 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 and obviously in 2013 was when I did that was the first time where I'd been a babyface because the audience I think I had, I had earned the respect of the TNA fans at that point um, and that's when I sort of did the they put me in the mafia and again that was you know was clearly Sting and Kurt were not going to go along with that and Joe were not going to go along with that if they didn't think I was right for it so to, they put me in the mafia and then eventually it led to um to the thing with Sting it's to this day is some of the best booking I've been involved with because I was it, it, I did the Bound for Glory series where it really you know really helped strengthen me in the eyes of the fans culminated in me having a great match with AJ in St. Louis where I I lost to AJ in the final but you know there's an art to losing the right way and it and it get and it get and it earned my respect and then that was what led to the match with Sting it was a it was a very good you know it was a really good piece of business all the way through that year and then obviously um, Sting basically saying it's no, this is, this is what needs to happen. Like it, it needs to be with his submission in the middle of the ring. And uh, it was, you know, it was huge. And I remember him very, um, I, you know, I, I, I hope that he doesn't mind me sort of sharing this because I know that he's, you know, he's old school, but I remember him coming back after that and uh, basically saying to the office, like make sure that that meant something sure and in other in other words like you know follow through with this guy you know what i mean go go like go all the way with him because again not you know not to harp on it like i'm i'm i would always be grateful for everything tna gave me but they had a tendency at times to sort of uh to not pull the trigger they had guys who they would they would get to a point get to a point get to a point and then they wouldn't pull the trigger you know and um because they were afraid to you know, and I remember Sting having this conversation with me, um, where he said, "Do I have a reputation for not wanting to put guys over?" And I sort of laughed and said, uh, "Not really, but you know, you haven't put that many guys over." So, and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah," and and he and he was and he said, "Well, they never asked me to," you know, and 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 that's and that's part of the weird politics in wrestling, as you know, you know that that the, the office sort of. 
they there was this real reluctance with with the big stars like the Stings and the Kurtz or Booker T or Nash or whatever. There was this real reluctance from the office for them to do the honors for anyone. When most of the time, if you ask them, they would be you know if they thought the guy if it was the right guy, they would be happy to do it. And that was and that was where Sting basically stood up and went, no, this is this is what we're doing. Like he's winning in the middle with this you know this finish and uh, and by the end of that year, I was the world champ. So you know I, I'm. I will always be eternally grateful to Steve Borden. He's a he's a quality human being and a great professional. He certainly is, and uh, we are still to trying diligently to get him on this podcast. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, the the thing is with guys like Kevin Nash and Booker, I know those guys and Sting especially. They don't they don't mind uh, passing a torch like that. But like Sting had said after he passed it to you, you know, make sure this means something. They only have so many torches to pass before it doesn't yes. mean anything anymore. And uh, right. and so they, you know, I know guys like that don't mind doing it. They just want to make sure that it means something. And it certainly did mean something because, as you said. Uh, not only did you became the, become the TNA world champion, but in a single tournament, you beat Samoa Joe, Kurt Angle, and Jeff Hardy in the finals. So uh, yeah. that must have indicated to you that the push was on. How much pressure, if at all? Some guys don't have any pressure. But uh, did you have any pressure in that spot when they, uh, when they, they put, a, as, as they say in the business, a rocket under your ass? Um. I, I did only really because of the circumstances. Actually, like the the, the sad reality of it was that um, the, the, that those wheels had been set in motion before John Gaburik joined the company, um, and he sort of took it on and and you know to his credit, you know went and followed through with it and and decided that I was still the right guy and everything like that, but. Uh, I always felt like I had unfortunate timing because it, it coincided with AJ leaving the company and they, they made a huge count, you know, huge miscalculation. They, I think they really, they were really working under the assumption that he would stay because he'd always stayed in the past and, um, and he didn't, you know, and, and so the timing was bad because unfortunately Jeff had had his legal issues, Jeff Hardy. Uh, so he couldn't go to the UK. And the reason I, the reason I say that is because to me looking at it in under, you know, once, once it was sort of made, once it was made apparent to me, like, okay, this is, this is where it's going. This is the, this is the plan. My immediate thing was, why are we doing it in December in Orlando when we're going to go to the UK in one month? Sure. Like, it would be the it, it would could have been the biggest moment in TNA history if I had if we had you know like Bobby Roode was probably the, the hottest heel in the company at that point. I was like, why can't we can't we figure something out where it's me and Bobby at Wembley, you know? And I get the strap there, like sure. and and but they wanted you know. But again, this is this is what I was talking about. Was like trying to appease too many people. Because like, well, they wanted Jeff in the final, but Jeff can't go to the UK, so we have to do it here. And then they want me to turn heel because Jeff's a baby, you know. And it was just, uh, it was, it, you know. And I, I just feel like the audience at that time were they had really invested in me. Um, they had really sort of they, I, I had got past the initial sort of oh he's just another body guy getting a push and blah blah blah. And I'd had the team with Joe, and I'd really earned my stripes. Then wrestling Joe in a in a really solid rivalry the year before, and I'd really sort of earned my 
and my stripes with the audience. And I think went through that whole year where they went, yeah, like we actually, we're really glad that you're going with this guy. Like they really were happy about it. And then to, to do it in that fashion, they just sort of, the heat wasn't really on me as it, as it, as much as it was on, on the company. Cause they went, ah, oh, you know, like you, we betrayed their trust. And, sure. and once, once you lose the trust of the audience, um, it's very hard to get it back. And obviously then it, you know, so it was bad. That was, I felt like it was sort of a bit deflating anyway, the win, because they went, ah, oh, like, you know, why couldn't you just let the guy win the title? You know, why did he have to do it? Why, why did it have to be like that? And then to then add to that, the fact that AJ was leaving, which was such a huge, you know, such a, it was like, you know, a real heartbreaker for TNA and for TNA fans. Um, then I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm inadvertently left, you know, like with that dirty bathwater as well, you know? So it was, so I think it was like this sort of horrible one, two punch. So then, they just want like the audience were just sort of so disgusted with the company that then it sort of reflected onto me and they were just like, Oh, we don't want to know about this, you know, like, and, and, and I felt like it was always an uphill battle after that. So the pressure I felt was more, uh, more in that respect because, and I didn't handle it very well because I wasn't as mature as I am now, frankly, you know, the, the reality is, is that I was like 27 and I was really, I felt like I was just starting to sort of, hit my stride and really starting to just understand, you know, the, the, the role and everything. And then just wasn't prepared for that sort of, you know, that level of, of politics and heat and issues. And, and there were a lot of people backstage at TNA who were, you know, really like there were certain people there who were, who obviously felt like they should have been the one given that spot. And they didn't like the fact that they got passed over for me and different things. And, you know, they were also, they were talent, but they were also in the meetings and different things. So it was like, there, you know, there was just a lot of, there was just a lot of negative energy. And I just, um, I, you know, looking back on it, I wish that I had been able to enjoy it a bit more, but unfortunately it was like every week I would show up to work and it would be some sort of, there'd be some sort of new issue, you know, and obviously being the, being the world champion, I was always sort of right in the middle of it. And it just felt, it just felt snake bit, you know, and, and in, in a, in a weird way, um, I was sort of relieved to, to get rid of it, but at the same time was still disappointed just because I felt like, uh, I felt like I never got a fair shake to really carry the, the world title in the way that I felt like I should, which is, which was the, the most validating thing to me about this, this past year as the NWA world champion, uh, you know, because I was able to do it the way I wanted to do it. And obviously, proved that that was the right way to do it absolutely um you know it's funny you mentioned aj leaving not only aj but uh, shortly thereafter sting left as well and yeah. while neither of those things had anything to do with you uh the way it was booked history would show on your biography uh that that uh you ran them both out of uh right. tna and i say it tongue in cheek right. i say it tongue in cheek yeah. but is that a, a positive or a negative on 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 <laughs> on your uh career sure i, I it's funny because every now and then someone will mention that and they'll say oh you had stings last match in tna and i just go like come on guys like that wasn't <laughs> a match that was a farce like that no you know I, I, I really think that steve was i really think he was um he was. I, remember, I, I know he was very, very disappointed in, in, in that whole thing and that just that, that whole piece of business. It was just the fact that he looked at it and went, "Hold on, I put this guy over in 
you know, three months or four months ago in the middle of the ring in a, you know, in, in this match where it passed the torch. And now my last match, now it's going to be like this with all this, you know, all this sort of nonsense and shenanigans and stuff. It, I, and I, and again, it wasn't me, but it was like, it was just the fact that there was just so much negativity there at that point and I was unfortunately associated with it and there's nothing you can do about that that's just perception so shortly thereafter you guys parted ways you and TNA what was uh, what was the reason that that happened uh, f- frankly the, I, I, had, I had sort of made um, I had sort of made up my mind probably a year before that that when my contract expired I wasn't going to explore a new one um but you know that's easy to say knowing that the, the, there was no way they were going to be able to match what they were paying me sure. um and you know that was it, it was you know it was the same reason that everybody else left you know the money ran out and uh at that point the money running out was was enough of a factor because you know that because that because things had gotten so bad there as far as the feelings that it wasn't like you were going to stay and go well you know uh, i'll take a pay cut but damn it i believe in this company and i'm going to help it get back on its feet and i'm going to you know and i'm going to prove everyone you know because because there was none of that like it was they, they ran out of money because they made bad decisions and they were bad decisions that many of us, including myself had said, don't do this, you know, like this is going to, this is going to lead to, this is going to be bad for business. And they did them anyway. You know, that there was a lot of situations there in that last, my last sort of year, that last year and a bit where stuff shouldn't have happened because they should have listened to the people that, that knew the audience better than, than they trusted them to, which was the talent, you know, the talent that, especially someone like me, when, when you think about it, Dave, like I went through, you were there, like I went through, every level of that company. It wasn't like I came in as a top guy. You know, right. I, I, I went through every level of that company. I worked uh, dark matches, explosion matches, you know, how shows I wrestled, you know, <laughs> mixed tag matches, everything you could think of, you know, crazy, like made so much chicken salad out of chicken, you know what, you yeah. know, and, 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 and so really no one had a better handle on, on what our audience saw. And this is another thing that's important for me to say is that, <laughs> TNA, when what they've proven now, if you look at the numbers, TNA, we had our own audience. We had our own unique fan base. And I think that deep down, I think that Dixie and some of the other people running that, especially, you know, ones like John Gaburik or Bruce Pritchard, who had come from WWE, where they are so, I don't want to say brainwashed, it's not the right word, but so pro WWE in their mentality and everything they do that they couldn't they couldn't fathom the idea that anyone watching our show was just watching our show they they just they just believed that okay the 2 million people are watching our show on spike they must all be WWE fans as well and it, that wasn't true you know they they were there were a significant number of our audience and I think it's proven now if you look at the numbers that were just watching our show and we betrayed their trust because they basically every new person that would come in would basically go, "You don't want that. You want this." And they would go, "No, we want that. That's why we watch this show." And uh, you know, and there was just there's only so many times you can you can say, "I don't think this is a good idea," and here's why, and then get told, "Shut up. You're just a wrestler." You know, before you just go, "You know what? I, I'm I'm done here because." To be a good to be a to be a good pro wrestler, in my opinion, you have to be a little bit of a good booker. You have to be a little bit of a good producer because 
when you're out there, yeah, you, you may not have written the segment, you may not have written the angle, you may not have signed off on any of it, but when you're out there in the ring, you're still the one who has to convey that story to the audience and you have to gauge what the audience is feeling about it to take it where it needs to go. So you have to have a, a fundamental understanding of it. So to not collaborate with the guys who have the most sort of experience of that relationship with the audience just was just made no sense to me. And it proved, and it was proven in the fact that once they, once they stopped collaborating with the, with the talent on all that stuff, like look where the business went and you can make the whole, you can make the argument for the business in general. Yeah. You're a wise man. I got to tell you, because uh, you, you, you're exactly right. And I do believe that uh, uh, TNA had maybe not every fan was uh, exclusive TNA, but uh, many, many uh, a bigger percentage than not were dedicated to the TNA brand and and to guys like Joe and you and and Kurt and Bobby Roode and uh, James Storm yeah. and and that whole AJ. Um and, uh, well, I think it's I think it's proven now by the fact that you know WWE for all that time when we don't want any TNA guys, we don't sure. want any TNA guys, and suddenly, you know, AJ and Joe headlined SummerSlam, so it's like they, you know suddenly they realize like oh okay yeah no they're they're the, the best pro wrestlers in the world right now. My son's a big wrestling fan. He's twenty three. He grew up around it, and uh, he was talking to me the other day. It's funny that you mentioned it. And he said, "Do you remember when you said that AJ Styles would never main event?" Uh, a main event guy in WWE and I said I think back in those days AJ Styles would have told you he was never going to be a main event guy right. in WWE it's just a, a whole nother a whole different uh, world we live in right now and you know they, they he got an opportunity and God bless him he ran with it and he's doing they're all doing yes. great and um, yeah uh, but uh, so you hooked up with uh, Global Force Wrestling and uh, you became their champion any idea how close they got to making making a, a run as an actual you know television or, or uh, as a promotion? Well, it's it started well, you know, it started really well, and you know, I always got to have loyalty to Jeff because Jeff, uh, when when the British invasion sort of was starting to fizzle, or they were, or or it wasn't really fizzling. I don't think that's fair to say. I think we always had good heat, and we were always we always got a good reaction consistently. But but you know, TNA got bored of it. Like this shiny new toy came along, so we, we was, they were starting to sort of take their foot off the pedal with us a bit. Jeff Jeff basically was being brought back into the fold in TNA. You know, he'd had a bit of a sabbatical, and he had, and they put him in charge of India. They put him in charge of the the Rinka King thing in India, and they said you know, put your roster together. And he basically said, I want, I want Nick. I want this guy. And they sort of went, and you know, you, they, they didn't have any plan. They went, okay, sure. Yeah. You can have him. No problem. And, and, uh, he and he said to me, he said, I'm going to use this. First of all, I'm going to use you as a top guy because I believe that you can drive this show. He's like, but I also want to show them like, that they, the mistakes they're making because like they don't realize what they have on their hands. And that was in 2011. And then, you know, fast forward two years later, I was TNA world champion. So clearly I have a lot to, you know, to be grateful to Jeff Jarrett for. Um, and I've always enjoyed working with him. I've always looked up to him, you know? And so again, when, when, when the TNA thing, when I knew that was, that was coming, that was coming to an end, it coincided with Jeff starting Global Force, and I and and 
right away it was kind of the same thing where he said look it's a startup but i've got you know i've got this <laughs> sorry my son's doing a run in uh, he's adorable <laughs> and um and uh and then we did this we did the show in in vegas and i was it couldn't have got off to a better start. You know, the Orleans, they did it really well. They had Keith Mitchell running the truck and, you know, they had some great lighting. They had great people involved and they had good talent. And again, if you look at the people who were involved in those first tapings, like it was sort of a who's who because some of them went on to be sort of Lucha Underground stars. Some of them went to WWE, some of them in New Japan, you know. Sure. You know? <laughs> so it was like, Jeff has an eye for talent. And, um, you know, I think that he, I think... <laughs> I don't know all the details, but I do, I do know that it obviously the main thing that everyone does know about is that unfortunately it just happened to come at a time where Jeff was having some personal issues. Um, but I think maybe he just didn't necessarily have a definitive plan. I think he, I think he thought let's get these first couple of shows in the can. We'll present these finished polished products and they were very good. You know, if you've seen them and then, and I think he just sort of hoped that maybe something would fall into place. I don't know if he necessarily maybe didn't have, you know, a plan after that. And then it's, you know, it was difficult to, you know, just lost momentum. But uh, again, it was, it was a good, it was a nice feather in my cap in the sense of, again, he put the trust in me to be the first champion, you know? So sure. it, it was, yeah, it was, um, you know, to, uh, to, Again, some of the, the names involved in that, like Bobby Roode, you know, it was Bobby and I in the final. And <laughs> when, you, when it's funny, I was just talking about who the final should have been for the TNA world title. And then sure enough, you know, fast forward to that's true. Vegas a couple of years later. And that's what we did. So, uh, yeah, and it's just it's just a shame that it didn't get it because it had it had potential. And um, but, you know, it's. It was it was it was an interesting sort of time. It just it, it was short lived. I don't really know really know much more than that. So you had a cup of coffee uh, with Impact Wrestling, and then uh, you got involved in working uh, for Billy Corgan as he attempted and has been successful so far uh, to rebuilding the NWA brand. How did that come about? So Billy had obviously been involved with TNA, right? And then when he he came in. He came in uh, to work in the creative team, um, and his first set of tapings were actually my last. It was, uh, you know, it was the, the, whatever that slammiversary was, uh, where I was in the angle with James Storm and all that. And um, and he, so we, you know, we only crossed paths a little bit, and it was he. I think he worked. We actually we collab, We worked together on one. I think it was one promo segment. I think he, you know, he, he was he was running creative one. And it was pleasant. It was fine. It was, you know, I was found it very easy to work with and that was it. And, uh, and didn't really think any more of it because obviously I was leaving the company. So it was very sort of emotional time. And I'd sort of checked out, you know, to avoid getting too upset about the whole thing. And I just sort of moved on. Um, <laughs> then, uh, while I was doing this stuff with Jeff and global force, um, obviously the, 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 the Game of Thrones um, stuff began <laughs> behind the scenes at TNA with Billy and John Gaburik and Dixie and lawsuits and, you know, everyone screwing each other over and stuff. So we were just sort of watching it from the outside looking, going, God, what is happening? Like, what craziness, you know, like they should put, they should turn the cameras around and then exactly. they've got themselves a show. And, uh, 
and it was you know it was one of those things where we didn't really think anything more of it and i just i felt bad for billy because i i knew i, I knew enough of the guys there still obviously uh, when i would stay in touch with them work to the point where they would all be like yeah billy's getting screwed here like he he's basically helping he's basically you know writing checks to keep the lights on around here and then they're and now they're trying to like you know run him out sort of thing so it was like wow you know that's a shame because whenever someone's willing to part with their own money, like they have my respect. And, uh, and that was that. And we think more of it. And then I re- I remember reading just in my, like a random headline, uh, Billy Corgan buys NWA. And I sort of looked at it and went, Oh, and I remember thinking, I can't believe Billy is still, still wants to be in the wrestling business yeah. <laughs> you know, because he has such a, it's such a negative experience. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much he ended up losing in the end, but certainly at the time he was a couple of million bucks in. Sure. You know, and I'm thinking, well, he's a better man than me because <laughs> I believe Absolutely. he still wants to do it, you know, and, 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 and didn't really think any more of it. And then Dave Lagana called me and obviously Lagana and I had much more of a relationship because we worked together in TNA. Right. And, uh, and at the time I was so disillusioned with wrestling, um, for one reason or another, WWE isn't an option. Um, you know, and that's a whole different kettle of fish that, you know, it's probably not even worth talking about at this point. And, um, and there were, you know, nothing else, nothing else was really, you know, with besides Ring of Honor, which I didn't really think necessarily I was a good fit for, although you could argue the point now, you know, since what I've been doing there. But at the time I didn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't feeling a lot of enthusiasm from them. Um, although they didn't, they didn't blow me off completely, but it was, it was, it was lukewarm at best. Sure. There was nowhere else really. And again, same with New Japan. It was, I was like, there's, there's not, there's not many places left to go. And um, for the first time in my adult life, I was actually doing some non-wrestling related things. Uh, I was consulting for my friends. Um, uh, he has a, he has a talent company where he provides, uh, he provides talent for, promotional things for different brands and stuff like that. You know, like when you see people doing tastings and that sort of thing, like he, he, he has a big company that sends people all over the country. And I I was, and I was consulting for him, helping him to sort of streamline some of the stuff and, you know, sort of basically be like talent relations. Um, and, uh, I was doing some of that and we were, we were getting ready to move and the, um, Bill, Dave called me and basically said, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you not like, why are you not in WWE? Which is the, which is the first thing everyone asked me, like, why are you not in WWE? And if, and, and, and secondly, like, if you're not doing that, are you still like, are you still interested? Are you still in the business? You know, like, yeah, what exactly. are you doing? You know? And, uh, and I basically told him how I felt and was like, I just, nothing's really pushing my buttons. And, and, and like, and he says, well, this is what we're doing. And he explained the whole, why he'd left. He was basically, he was going with Billy, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they, you know, they basically wanted to start from scratch and rebuild the NWA brand. And they felt like the time was right. And they felt like the, the, um, the audience, uh, the, the, the sort of nostalgia feel and the, you know, the retro cool element of it and stuff like that would work. And I happen to agree. And then basically said, we want a guy to build around and we want it to be you. And, but we want you to collaborate with us, you know, because we, Dave and I had worked together enough at TNA where he knew that I had some decent, you know, I've got half a brain in my head somewhere. 
And uh, and he basically said, but, you know, we, we want you to really, really be involved sort of uh, more than just as a talent. Um, what do you think? And I basically, I, and I basically spent the next half an hour articulating what I thought could work in the current, in the current landscape of wrestling. Um, got off the phone with Dave and immediately my phone rang again. And it was Billy. And basically David basically obviously called Billy and said, you need to talk to this guy. And we had a very similar conversation. And by the end of that, I said, okay, I'm for lack of a better term, I'm all in, you know, like, let's do it. And, uh, that was one of the things, and and right from the beginning was that was where I'd, uh, I'd basically talked about how how I wasn't necessarily a big boxing fan or a big MMA fan per se, but I love watching the twenty four sevens and the all access and the UFC embeddeds and the UFC countdowns and stuff right. like that because I love build. It's about building anticipation for one singular event. You know, it's uh, sure the Rocky Rocky films conclude with the match. They don't start with the match. You know. And, and I felt like all we were getting in the business at the time, I felt like all we were really getting was just match, 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 match. Oh, you got to see this epic match. Oh my God, what an amazing match. So you got to see the match between this person and that person. Oh, they did so many spots. It was unbelievable. You know, there's so many cool moves. It was crazy. And I went, okay, but like, how much of that can I watch? You know, and, and I, and I sort of said like, uh, you know, I, it's fun to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet every now and then. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's fun to go. It's, it's fun to go. It. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's fun to go every now and then and take your belt off and go, okay, let's go nuts. But sometimes you really want to enjoy one thing that someone does really well and, you know, or, or go, well, you, you know, try this incredible something, you know, and have this perfect ending to a nice meal. You know what I'm saying? And I, uh, and I, that was... I said, I, I don't know how we penetrate this market with just more. Here's a ring in a room with a bunch of wrestlers. Uh, you know, here's you know, here's some more matches. I, I don't know how you penetrate the market like that. I said, but I knew Dave's talent was in was in making mini movies. You know, because we had attempted to do some some of that kind of stuff at TNA, and obviously, a lot of the time it wouldn't be long enough because of TV time. You know, everyone's got to get on the show. Whereas with this, with YouTube we're able to take as long as we need and sure. really tell the story in a deep, meaningful way. And then we have, and then it was just, that, that, that was where 10 pounds of gold was born. So it was a really a collaboration of all of us chiming in. And then, and, and they explained to me how this guy, Tim storm was the current champion. And instead of just, they were going to just strip him. And then once they met him, they just felt like he was a compelling character and there was something about him. And, and, and in real life, he's a genuinely really good guy. And they want to they want to tell that story first. And I said, I love it. Let's do it. I'd love to be the, the the antagonist to this, you know, this older protagonist who's like, this is, you know, like he said, this is his mountaintop. And like, then I can come along. And I said, what a great way to start whenever we do it. What a great way to start my campaign as NWA champion as being the guy who sort of, you know, who defeated this older guy who was, you know, kind of in the twilight of his career, but, but God loved being the, you know, NWA champion. So that's great heat for me right off the bat. And, and then people just gravitated to it and that's, and it, and it just kept growing and it's still growing. And that's where we got, well, clearly it works because we got Cody's attention. And next thing you know, it coincides with all in and fast forward to the, process of putting that together and it was like making a prize fight honestly we were we were negotiating everything right because we're all you know we don't work for the same company it's not we're all having to collaborate and go okay well sure this works for me 
that works for you. This works for me. That works for you. Okay, let's make a deal. And look what happened when we did it that way, as opposed to just one guy overlording everything, going, this is what we're doing. Everyone else shut up. You know, it's like when we all kind of went, okay, well, this is what Cody wants. This is what we want. This is what I need. This is what Ring of Honor needs. This is what NWA's vision is. You know, suddenly we create the situation where everyone's like, man, I've never, you know, some of the things people said to me were just even were even surprising to me, like that they were saying, I've, people were saying, I've never been this excited about a wrestling match ever. And I'm going, what? You know, like, I know we're doing, I know we're, you know, I know we're doing good here, guys, but is it really, you know, is it, is it really working that well? And yeah, it was. I mean, by the time the bell rang, by the time Earl Hebner called for the bell, and we're stood across from each other and we haven't even touched and, you know, 11,000 people are just going, you know, ballistic and they're on their feet. It was like, that was the most gratifying moment of my entire career. I bet that must have given you, uh, talk about goosebumps. Uh, I can't even imagine a scenario that, uh, it's, it's, that's almost like a rocky ending, you know what I mean? Uh, but uh, yeah, it's funny because it, it was, a, it was a, for us, you know, Dave, Dave Lagano and I had that conversation where we said, you know, for us, that was the, that was the pop, <laughs> even though it was right, even though it was the, even though it was the beginning of the match, like that to us was the most gratifying moment was to say, like, we proved that our model works. Sure. You know, and the match was crazy. Well, and that's what the NWA was in the old days. So you guys have really come full circle. And uh, as like I said, as an old school fan, I congratulate you and, and wish you all the best of luck. Um, I would be remiss in not asking you, although I hadn't planned on it, but you had mentioned it. Uh, you know, for fans that, that listen to this podcast uh, may not be familiar as I'm not familiar with the issue with you and WWE. Is that something you're allowed to get into? It's not really an issue. It's just, I just like, it, no one ever seems to give me a straight answer. But there's obviously something, you know, um, which is a shame because you know it, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't my dream as a kid to you know to at least get to wrestle there, you know, somehow, some way. And uh, it's it's a weird situation. It's you know it's obviously something personal. Um, it's you know, and it's probably. It's probably a common. It's probably a combination of things uh, to a point. Just I know, knowing knowing the little bit I do about how they how they sort of operate in terms of when they look at guys, it's probably one of those things where there's there's two or three sort of red flags, or you know, which is funny to me because I don't think any of them are really significant issues. But you know, obviously personal things like with you know my wife uh, and her history there, and then. Other things like, you know, certain people who perhaps I worked with at TNA who now work there, you know, and different things where there's enough enough of it where they just go like, I'm not sure. And for whatever reason, it always seems to have been uh, a stopping point there. You know, but again, I feel like it has to be something at the very top because I've spoken to enough people who work there um, in a non-wrestling capacity when I've been to different events and stuff like that, like at the Hall of Fame or whatever who have pulled me to one side and gone like, when are you starting here? Like, why sure. do you not work here? You know? <laughs> and, and it like, they don't know. So, you know, clearly it's something at the very top and, you know, it's hard to get that. It's hard to get those guys on the phone, David. So, you know, <laughs> I just, I, I sort of, I just sort of made peace with that a, a couple of years ago and went, okay, you know, that's like, it is what it is. You know, my body of work speaks for itself and one can, will continue to, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, people, 
people forget, and I'm, you know, look, I'm 31. So it's like, I just, I just got started young. So it's like, unfortunately I have a lot of, you know, I have a history, you know, and some of it happens to be when I was young and dumb. (laughs) So, but at the same time, I think, you know, it's also, it's also a, a good thing because, uh, I have such a rich tapestry of experience in the business and have worked with so many people that to be, you know, to be at the age I'm at and Cody's the same way, you know, that's one of the reasons why Cody and I worked well together. And it's why I think we have, you know, the rivalry with us is real because I think we we're, we're, we're similar in a lot of ways because we're wise beyond our years, you know, obviously for different reasons, he grew up in the business, but mine, because I was fortunate enough to get a break early and get to work with, a lot of top guys and I've just have that sort of shark mentality where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to hitch my wagon to Kevin Nash, you know, and people like that, where I'm going to learn from, I'm going to learn from the guys who are smartened up. And, uh, there is a culture that exists in our business where there are people who make a living telling less experienced wrestlers what to do. And, you know, despite not really ever having the, you know, not having ever done what was needed in their own career to, you know, to become a major star. And the people like that who exist, they, they thrive on a culture of ignorance. They thrive on a culture where guys don't, you know, remain sort of, uh, yes, sir, no, sir, I'll do whatever you want. Like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have an opinion. I'll just do whatever they tell me to do. They, people like that, that's how they make a living. And they hate guys who come along who go, uh, I think I'm going to do it like this because like I want to make money or I want to, I want to be successful. Like I'm going to, you know, I remember having a conversation and I'm not suggesting Bruce Pritchard is one of those guys before anyone jumps on that. But I remember having a conversation with Bruce Pritchard where I said like, I've paid my dues. Okay. Just because you didn't see me do it. Like it doesn't mean I didn't do it. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, I wrestled six days a week and most of the time, a lot of the time I'd wrestle twice. And I, you know, I was the young, I was the, the, the low man on the totem pole. So I had sat in the very back. Half the time I was like squished in the back of a van with like boxes of merchandise and programs and stuff like that. Put the ring up, take the ring down every night, every day. You know, I, like I've paid my dues. Okay. Like, and, and don't talk to me like I'm like, I'm sorry that I happened to only like at the time I was like 24 years old. I'm like, I'm sorry that I happened to only be 24 years old, but I've paid my dues. I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat shit for you again, just because you want me to do, you want to see me do it, you know? And, and some guys, some people, Bruce, Bruce responded well to that because Bruce respects that, but some people don't respond well to that, you know, because they, they thrive on a culture of, people who are, you know, who show up and, you know, are going to keep the status quo. That's all I'll say. And, and, and I've never been that guy. And look, uh, in that respect, the NWA is the best place for me because I'm, I'm able to like, we all collaborate with each other. Nobody, you know, Billy, Billy is the money. Billy's the final say Billy signs off on everything, but we all, we all have a say and we don't always all agree, but we all, we all hash things out together and no feelings ever get hurt because we're all, because we're all just looking for what's best for business. And, uh, you know, I just wish that, I wish that more, more people in the business, um, 
still approached it with that mentality because Cody and I proved, and we all proved this year with that one year, you know, with the, the NWA in its current, in its current form, you know, started more or less a year ago, you know, to, to be at the level right now where, you know, obviously the amount of attention that the brand has now compared to one year ago, it's a testament to this approach, you know, and I just wish that more people would see it and go like, yeah, but you know, we, we, in some ways, we, we know we're, we're, we're not we're not reinventing the wheel here. In fact, we're kind of we're kind of going back to a more basic wheel and just doing it in a modern approach, you know, with a modern delivery system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I saw texting with Jeff Jarrett uh, and he had uh, mentioned that uh, it's the biggest advance in the history of that building. Uh, the uh, 70th anniversary show and uh, uh, that building has been promoting wrestling going back uh, uh, probably 50 years. So, uh, so obviously you guys are doing something right. And I know there's a ton of interest on, uh, on fight TV and uh, it's going to be two out of three falls, you and Cody for the NWA for your rematch on the NWA yeah. 70th anniversary this Sunday. Hey, two more questions and then I'll let you go. You've been more than generous with your time. Um, uh, everybody knows, and you mentioned being married to Mickey James and we obviously heard in the back, your adorable son, congratulations. Uh-huh. Uh, how difficult is it juggling a young child with her in WWE and you uh, touring the world as a champion or a representative of the NWA? It's, it's very difficult. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've been diplomatic in this answer before where I've said, you know, we do the best we can and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, the, the, the reality is, is it's, it is tough. It's hard. Um, it, was, it was easier last year because he wasn't in school yet, but now he's in pre-K. So, you know, now we're in a situation where it's, it's not... You know, a lot of the time I just would, especially when I went overseas, a lot of the time I would just, I would just bring him with me. Sure. You know, he, this kid's got, <laughs> he's got a lot of, he's got miles, he's got more miles on his belt than a lot of adults I know. Um, and, you know, and he, he's, he's flown, yeah, he's, he's, he's done the, he's done the flight to, he's done a fl- done the flight to England at least 10 times. Wow. Probably more already, you know, and he's just turned four, but, um, yeah, it's it's not easy. You know, it's it's hard on a marriage and it's hard on you know raising a kid. But you know, we we, we put we put Donovan first. Um, there's a lot of last minute changes and additions and you know and things like that. And um, fortunately for me, you know, Billy, uh, he will always have my loyalty because he pays me and understands that. A lot of the time, I have to be home and basically contributing to the NWA from home. You know, and I, and I do, and I have. You know, I've worked, I've done a lot of work non-wrestling wise. You know, to help build the NWA, um, and obviously that role has become a bigger part of my life since losing the title to Cody. And that's all by design. You know, like, and obviously we're because our approach is a bit more. Like I'd said before, we we tend to try and put more focus on building to one significant event rather than just doing loads and loads and loads of events. And like you said, you know, with the build to NWA 70, that's our pay-per-view. We'll get the revenue from that. We'll, we'll get the, you know, we'll get the ticket sales from that. We'll get, and, and yeah, yeah. Like the advance was very good. Um, the early indications for, from fight are quite, quite good for the, um, for the pay-per-view, you know, revenue. 
And so, you know, and, and a lot of that is, you know, as a word, and I have a lot, and I'm, I have a lot to do with helping scout other talent for that show. Like I've had a lot to do with reaching out to new talent that we're looking for the national title, for example. Um, you know, and, and so I do, you know, I wear, I, I wear a lot of hats, not as many as Dave Lagana, <laughs> who works harder than anyone. But you know we're we're it's a it's a small core group and I'm part of it and I and I'm very proud of that because you know I don't want to wrestle forever you know sure. that's the truth but I but I do love this business and I and I have a lot to offer uh, on on the non wrestling side of it and so it's very gratifying for me to get to do that. That's awesome. I and I didn't know that you guys uh, that you had a part creatively and that uh... not not so much creative. I mean, I, you know, obviously they ask my opinion, sure. you know, and it's a. It, cloudy thing to get into because I don't want people to think that I'm a talent who's also creative because it's just I've never I don't you know I think that that's a that's a dangerous road but obviously what I mean is that we're just more old school in the sense that all everyone has a say and we all contribute but as but yeah no I do I do have I do have some other some additional roles with the company as far as um you know uh talent and stuff like that is concerned and um and just, you know, like just logistics and helping with other things like, you know, like today, for example, I was basically um, helping sort of streamline, implement like a, 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 a online system where we can keep track of everybody's bookings, you know, so that because everything's digital, everything's online now. So sure. I was like, hey, why don't we link this and that and blah, blah, blah. And, that, you know, and we because Dave's in Nashville, I'm in Richmond currently and uh Billy is either in Chicago or LA or New York most of the time. So it's, you know, so we're, we're very rarely in the same place. Right. So, you know, we, we basically communicate online together most, you know, most of the time. And then we're, we're just, we're just building things all the time and throwing out ideas and suggesting things and working things out. And that's how we're building this brand and building this business. I actually got more enjoyment, uh, uh, in, in in the behind the scenes stuff that I got to be involved with in WCW and then shortly short short lived the XWF, then uh, I and, and I love going out and, and and hosting the shows and being the announcer. But uh, for me, the the kind of minutiae stuff like putting together a back end schedule for me that was more of a enjoyable uh, kind of project than than going out and actually doing what I was getting paid to do. I don't know if if you could say the same, but. Uh, I, I definitely I, I put it this way I love you know don't get me wrong there's, there's there's nothing that will like again using using all in as an example you know that, that sure. moment where where you know that you've done the you've done everything right and people care about people really care about you and your opponent in the middle of the ring sure there's no better feeling than that you know that, that and and it's and when it goes well it's you know it's, it's the best feeling in the world you know and uh but I do, I do have, I'm, I'm very confident that once I was to, you know, whenever, whenever the day comes that I stop wrestling, um, it won't be something that I, it won't be, it won't, it won't be like, I will get just as much enjoyment out of producing and working behind the scenes. And I won't have this thing where I'm constantly going, oh, I want to get back out there. Like I, I don't have it doesn't work like that for me. Like I really, I really get a, a really great enjoyment out of building something and, and watching it go out. And I, and I, and in a weird way, I really enjoy watching other talent come back and do something that I suggested them, you know, or so, or do, do work, do, do things that we all sort of worked on together or do something that was, you know, that when you, when you see your idea come to fruition and you see it work really well and you see someone nail it and they come back and you see that look on their face, like, 
that was great. That's, that's, that's such a huge, you know, great feeling for me and uh, something I look forward to doing for a long, long time. You mentioned uh, what you're going to do after wrestling. My and Funny, uh, great segue. My last question, um, when, you, when we both had a cup of coffee in Impact Wrestling last year, uh, 18 months ago, they, they, you did a segment uh, on color commentary. And I, was, I told you this, I'm pretty sure. I was blown away by how natural you were as a color commentator, how entertaining you were. I recently read that you did something similar and blew away a whole bunch of other people uh, for Ring of Honor and really did an amazing job. Any, any uh, thought process or interest in being a color commentator uh, after your wrestling career has wound down? Uh, I, honestly, I would probably do it now. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I appreciate it. I do remember you coming to me. I had fun with it. Uh, it's, I mean, I, you know, obviously if I was to do it full time, I would, I would, you know, I would have a lot of learning to do still. I'm not suggesting that I'm, you know, that I'm this brilliant, ready to go polished, uh, color guy right off the bat, but there's, you know, clearly the, the you know, the, the feedback is, you know, it speaks for itself. And I, and I appreciate everyone who's said that. I know that, I know that Meltzer kind of raved about it and I know some other people had some nice things to say about my, my stuff at ring of honor last week. And, and like you said, I remember that the, the, uh, the stuff I did at impact when I went back for that brief stint, it just, it comes naturally to me, as you can probably tell, I'm not, not a guy who minces words a lot. <laughs> and, uh, it just, I, I, for me, I always saw wrestling from a TV perspective, you know, that, the reason it resonated with me, it wasn't, I wasn't one of those people like yourself who my dad didn't, my dad took me to a couple of independent shows, but you know, they were, they were crap, you know, there was like a hundred people and it was, you know, someone pretending to be Kane, you know, it wasn't a good show. Right. So it wasn't like I sat there and went, oh, wow, you know, I want to be like this. Sure. Uh, like I was laughing at it because I'd seen, you know, because I was, I grew up watching the height of pro wrestling and the, you know, the, the nitro and raw, like where there's sold out arenas every week and everyone's going nuts and everyone's this hugely polished performer and everyone's over. Like clearly that's what drew me to the business. And a huge part of that was listening to either JR and Jerry, the King Lawler or listening to Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay and Bobby, the brain Heenan. I mean, and again, think about those names, the sure. best announcers of all time. were all working at that point. Bobby, the brain Heenan. I, I've said this, I've said this before, but I don't know if I've ever said it publicly, but I think Bobby, the brain Heenan is probably the greatest talent in the history of pro wrestling. Like, when you take into account his work as a wrestler, his work as a manager, his promo skills, and then his work as a color commentator, he has to be the greatest talent ever. And you know, no one could do all the things that he could do that he, well. He was also one of the most funniest guys in the world off camera as well. Uh, so, and one of the nicest guys as well. One of the honors of uh, one of the honors of, of my career is is getting to be friends uh, with Bobby and his family. I and bet. Uh, I'm so I, I bet I'm I'm so jealous. Yeah, I never and, got and to work. You know what? I normally wouldn't say this, but you should be because he was one of a kind, man. I did very very yeah, missed absolutely. and and uh, it's like it's it's, it's it, it, honestly it's like it, it would be like someone saying you know someone who someone said oh i got to work with johnny carson you know i mean it's like he 
he that's who he is to our business. He's he's the greatest and uh, you know once in a lifetime talent. There'll never be another one like Absolutely. Bobby Heenan. Never. Well, that's ironic because I, I I remember raving about your your color commentary skills, and then I all of a sudden I read some things on the internet about what you did at Ring of Honor, and I was like, see, I'm not losing my mind. That's you know, uh, the guy's actually uh, got talent. So uh, good luck in that in the future. I would say <laughs> I would say based on the two appearances that you've done, uh, the sky's the limit. But uh do want to definitely uh thank you for your time you've been more than um uh more than uh cooperative in your time and want to promote this sunday in nashville uh limited seats remain i do know uh that almost all of ringside is sold out it is the biggest advance in the history of that building at the fairgrounds and um and it will be on Fight TV, the NWA rematch between you and Cody, two out of three falls, celebrating the 70th anniversary of the National Wrestling Alliance. Great stuff, Nick. Uh, best to you and your family, and uh, uh, good luck in your match and uh, the future of the NWA. I'm in your corner rooting uh, as a fan. Thank you very much, David. It means a lot. I've always been a big fan of yours, as you know, and I appreciate the time. Wow, that was great. Appreciate Nick's time and honesty, uh, sometimes brutally. And I really appreciate that interview. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot of information and a lot of behind-the-scenes glances, especially at TNA and and, and some of the issues that they had uh, in their waning years before it was bought by Anthem Sports and Entertainment. I want to thank Nick again. Hey, we're going to have Frankie Kazarian on next week so if you have any questions for frankie be sure to hit me up on twitter at david penzer or at penzer ringside Uh, frankie along with cody rhodes uh, is launching a cigar brand that will be coming out very very soon within the next week or so so we're looking forward to talking to frankie about his career and about tna and about uh ring of honor about all in and about his project with Cody, who as of now is the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Don't forget, this coming Sunday, NWA 70, the 70th anniversary of the National Wrestling Alliance. It will be in the main event, Cody versus Nick Aldis, two out of three falls for the NWA Heavyweight Championship. A lot of buzz behind this event, and you can check it out on Fight TV or the Fight app. Be sure to look it up, and I'm looking forward to watching it myself. Until next week with Frankie Kazarian, I'm David Penzer, still sitting ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. 